Well, good morning and welcome to worship. My name is Eric Barton. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel Downtown. We're delighted that you're here so that we can be together uh, despite it being a wee bit chippy outside. You braved it. And maybe just because you're here thinking we have a better shot of keeping the power on here than at your house. Whatever the reason, we're glad you're here. I love to come together at the beginning of the new calendar year and to do church. We used to teach our children a little song that we had learned when we were kids about the church. And the song goes like this. See if you can, McSwain, see if you can pay attention. Okay. It goes like this. I love to go to church. 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 That's it. That's all you got to do. And I remember that little bitty song and how instructive and impactful and informative it was because church from a very early age was not the source of dread or doom. The church was, hey, these were people that love me and are for me, even as a little kid, and I get to run up to them and see their short, wide ties and the deacons would all stand on the front porch and smoke cigarettes. And it was a wonderful thing. I loved it. And I've been grateful that we have been able to curate and cultivate a sort of familial dynamic at this church as well. But I'm always reminded of just how fragile it can be. And so we we manage it. We try to steward it as good as we can. But I'm also frequently reminded of another song. One of my heroes in the faith for many years ago, a guy named Rich Mullins, He wrote a song, and it's called, We Are Not As Strong As We Think We Are. And I think it might be helpful for us to get started in our sermon this morning. The first few lines of the song go like this. Well, it took the hand of God Almighty to part the waters of the sea, but it only took one little lie to separate you and me. Oh, we are not as strong as we think we are. And they say that one day Joshua made the sun stand still on the sky. But I can't keep these thoughts of you from passing by. Oh, we are not as strong as we think we are. We are frail. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, forged in the fires of human passion, choking on the fumes of selfish rage. And with these, our hells and our heavens, so few inches apart, we must be awfully small and not as strong as we think we are. I think Rich was right. It simply doesn't take a whole lot to wipe us out as individuals and therefore our our families, our groups, our church, our community. So how we live our lives in utter volitional and connected dependence on our God matters. The moment we drift onto autopilot is the moment we start to sink under the waves just like Peter did in the Sea of Galilee. We are never far from scuttling our lives. And so our big idea for this morning as we resume our sermon series in the book of 1 Corinthians, our big idea is morality matters. So we're gonna discuss some morality matters because morality matters. Now I wanna be super clear and proactive on this. Just as we said each week of our Advent series, morality never saved a single human soul. However, We get to live moral lives because it's what's best for us and God has given us what is required to make that happen. 
It's not that we have to live moral lives. It's that we get to. And the redeemed Christian, indwelled by the Spirit, equipped by the Word, and surrounded by the people, ever increasingly learns to love that. So that what we ought to do ever increasingly becomes what we want to do. Is that you? Well, it's supposed to be a bunch of people who gather together. We call that the church. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, we started 1 Corinthians way back in September of last year, a whole year ago. We took a break right at Thanksgiving to roll into an Advent series. Last week, we started chapter 9, and this week, we're going to look at chapter 10, not the entire chapter. I just want to reorient you and remind you how we got here, what we're doing in Corinth. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians because it follows the mission trips of the Apostle Paul. He does one mission trip through Galatia. He goes home. His second mission trip, he goes all the way through up through northern Greece and Macedonia. He sees Philippi. He sees Thessalonica. He goes down through Berea. He preaches in Athens. And then he finds himself in Corinth all alone and on fumes. He stays there for 18 months, planting a church, discipling, teaching, preaching the people of Corinth. When he concludes that trip, He sails all the way back to Antioch, where he takes just a few months, and then he sails off on his third missionary journey back through Galatia, finds himself in Ephesus on the western shores of what is today Turkey, and he sits there for three years. And while he's in Ephesus, he gets a letter and a report from Corinth. He writes them a letter. They don't like it. They send him one. He responds with a second letter. That's what we have as 1 Corinthians. It's the second letter that he writes them, which is really fascinating because the church in Ephesus, where Paul is writing this letter is really sort of what Paul is experiencing for the church universal. What is the church supposed to be, experience, do, and move forward? But he's writing to the church in Corinth, which is sort of the, uh, the manual for how to do the church local. It's really interesting. The book of Colossians is going to deal with all these strange Eastern mysticisms and issues, but the church in Corinth is dealing with all these Western individualisms and human selfishnesses. Now, we're here in the middle of chapter 10. We said that the first six chapters of Corinthians is all rebukes. <laughs> six different times he's just going to say, you idiots, you idiots, you idiots. Oh, wait, uh, carry the one, you idiots. And he just keeps whipping them until the morale improves. But in chapter seven at long last, we turn the corner and seven through 16 are all responses to some questions that he has. Now chapters eight, nine, and 10 really should be just one big massive chapter. It's all having to deal with the same idea. There's some obvious little topic breaks, but really chapters eight, nine, and 10 are all the central crux of the entire letter. Remember, Paul's writing to them because he's gotten wind of all these divisions and disunities and fractures in the congregation. Four years have gone by since he's seen them, and so he's very concerned. Too much is at stake to let this church splinter off. And so the central issue of these middle three chapters is individual entitlement, or more simply, selfishness. Now, when I say selfishness, I don't simply mean someone is self-centered or arrogant, but of course that can be and often is a part of it. I mean by selfishness, an individual puts his own interests above that of the group or the church or the community or in certain cases, the family. How was your holiday? We had some of them. I'm not going to name them. They know who they are. One of my heroes in the faith, a guy named Bruce Waltke, he puts it this way. All through scripture, the righteous the sadiq in Hebrew. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked 
are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. And Paul was beginning to, to smell that emerge in the church in Corinth. So here's what I want to do. We're going to be in chapter 10. We're just going to cover the first two-thirds of this little letter. I'm going to read straight through the first 10 verses, and then we'll circle back and I'll unpack it, and then we'll just walk through verses 11 to 22, and then we'll apply it, we'll pray, we're out of here, okay? So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, remember that our big idea is morality matters. First 10 verses, I'll just walk straight through For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be... Uh, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Oh, this is God's word. Wow. What are we supposed to take away from these opening 10 verses? It's actually some of the most fascinating literature in your Bible. It is the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago doing biblical theology with some stories that occurred 1,500 years before him. Now, you kind of have to have that understanding. It is Paul doing biblical theology. And then we, 2,000 years after that, get to do biblical theology on Paul's biblical theology. That's pretty cool. So buckle in, let me show you how all this is gonna fit together. Remember that chapter eight dealt with certain members of the Corinthian congregation wanting to have meat and that, that activity, that action caused some of the other weaker members to stumble and to struggle. Last week, Scott Gill led us through chapter nine d- discussing how Paul is personally exemplifying laying aside his rights for the sake and responsibilities to others and that that is Christian ministry and service. Now, chapter 10 is going to use this wonderfully long Old Testament story to sort of illustrate and amplify everything that he said in chapter 8 and chapter 9. Now, all that, remember, is an addressing of all the divisions and fractures that were happening in the church. Now, I've got to say, Paul said at the end of chapter 9, follow my example. I discipline, I buffet, I manage and steward my physical body. A couple things need to be said about that because it prepares us for what we just read in chapter 10. Paul's discipline of his body is not merely trying or attempting to manage sin. That's not what Christianity is. We don't just try to manage our sin. It's an intentional awareness that my person, my soul, my being craves spiritual things that are good for me, that God has created me to crave. God has created me in such a way to want things that are noble, that are beautiful, but my as yet to be redeemed physical and material self always, always, always tries to shortcut and short circuit and provide a less than noble, quick and dirty solution. That's the human experience for so very many of us. We are created to crave, but our fallen, unredeemed flesh, the material self, tries to satisfy that desire with something less than noble. And so Paul says, no, I discipline my body. It will not control me. I will be master over it. And Corinthians and church, 
you must be as well. So much is at stake. Let me tell you a story, he says, to really drive home the point. He doesn't want them to be unaware or ignorant or forgetful. Why does he say that? Because they were right there in verse 10, or sorry, verse one of chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, meaning they were. Four years had passed. And that's what happens with us. This is why we continue to gather back together every week. Our knowledge, our wisdom, our awe, it all leaks all over the place. That's why we mop this place about three times a week. Your awe, your wonder, your, your, you're, just, you're just leaking all over the place. We gotta come back together and we gotta fill ourselves back up together. So what Paul's gonna do, it's marvelous. And it happens very, very quick the way it's written in our English translations. He's gonna give them five wonderfully powerful blessings that the people of Israel enjoyed 1,500 years earlier, okay? Five super powerful blessings that God gave them. Let's see how that worked out for them. So right here we go. Chapter 10, verse one. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. That's the first incredible blessing. The nation and the people of Israel were literally led around from their departure from Egypt, the Exodus, with a pillar of cloud and fire. God was literally with them and guiding them corporately. In that age, he could not have been closer to them than he was. And he was active and he was involved and he was aware. He was with them. In the same way, Paul seems to be saying, but way much more, the people of the church are actually indwelled individually by that same presence of God, the Holy Spirit. And these people, the church, are led, they're advised, they're counseled, and they're directed. Now that's fascinating. He's making a, com a, a comparison. It's an argument from lesser to greater. Look what Israel had. They had the presence of God corporately. You've got the presence of God individually. So much more has been done for you, but it was a tremendous blessing for them. Second blessing, number two, still in verse one, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. The people, the nation of Israel had passed through the Red Sea. Incidentally, this is the Omega moment of the Old Testament. The Son of God is what Israel is called in Exodus chapter three. The Son of God passes through death, emerges into life, into promised prepared bounty. That's what happened with the children of Israel as they escape Egypt. It is the massive omega moment of the Old Testament. How much more so, Paul says, you in this age, you passed through the omega moment of the New Testament when the Son of God, Jesus, passed through actual death and judgment and condemnation and emerged into life. Just like Israel did in the Old Testament, Jesus is true Israel in the New Testament and he passed through death into life. Look at this amazing, enormous blessing. They had it, you have it so much more. Third, in verse two, and they all ate, oh, sorry, verse, uh, verse two, and all were baptized in Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The nation and the people of Israel were baptized or immersed into Moses. He was their spiritual head and he interceded for them and he represented them to God and God to them in the same way, but so much more. The people of the church are baptized or immersed into Jesus Christ, who is our spiritual head and who allows us to rightly relate to God and to have fellowship with him. They were in Moses. We're in Christ. God chooses to see us, not in Moses, but in Christ. The fourth incredible blessing, verse four, and all, uh, verse three, and all the same spiritual food. 
All of them, the nation, the people of Israel had eaten spiritual food that came down from heaven, the manna that God provided in the wilderness for their sustenance and for their survival. In the same way, Paul says, but so much more. The people of the church have received the bread from heaven in the person of Christ. We take and we eat of his body represented in the bread of communion. Jesus talks about this in John chapter six. Your fathers ate manna, but they died. You eat this bread, my act of obedience, my fulfilling the law of righteousness completely. You take this in and you will never die. We are surviving. We are sustained. The fifth thing here in verse four, and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the uh, spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Let me go ahead and say at the outset, no, Jesus was not a literal rock. It was flying around. Will somebody get that rock? No, he was present, a pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of Yahweh is a second person in the Godhead Trinity, Jesus pre-incarnate. And he was present when the rock was first struck and the water flowed forth at the beginning of the wilderness wanderings. He was also present at the end of those 38 to 40 years and the water was produced yet again. Spiritual drink, they were given sustenance in the same way, but so much more, Paul says. You've been giving living water. Living water. The book of Ezekiel talks about when Messiah comes, he will have springs of water flowing out and from every believer. Uh, New Year's Eve, Mike preached on John chapter four, the woman at the well. And Jesus said, whoever drinks this water will never thirst again. I will give that person springs of living water. Israel had it great. Church, you've got it so much better. So, wow, five very powerful and undeniable blessings and advantages. And yet... Verse five, nevertheless, yeah, they're dead. That's the new Eric translation of 1 Corinthians 10, five. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Nevertheless, all these things of God's provision, his power, his protection, yeah, they did. And God did it. Now that's amazing. In fact, almost all of them died except for Caleb and Joshua. Even Moses all those blessings, all those benefits, and still they died and they rebelled. Well, incredibly, this literature, Paul is brilliant, and I love that we get to unpack this together. In the first few verses, we see that Paul's going, hey, the people of Israel had five amazing blessings. You've got five even bigger ones in the same way. Now, he's gonna pivot, and beginning in verse six, we get to be reminded of five massive failures as cautionary warnings to the church, we get to see what happens to Israel. And so now we get some story time, okay? In verse six, the first of the five massive failures, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, what's Paul talking about? That we might not desire evil. Well, it's a technical translation that doesn't get, uh, doesn't, or it's a technical expression, doesn't get translated just right. Way back in Numbers 11, they had just come up out of the Red Sea Basin. They're about to start making their way into the promised land. And the people get mad. They start to grumble and fuss. And they say, hey, God, manna, cool, got it. We're sick of manna. Every day already, it's manana nut bread. It's manna cotty. Come on, we want something more than manna. So God says, oh, you don't like the manna, do you? Okay, all right. You want meat, do you? Like, we want the meat. We had pots of meat back in Egypt. No, they didn't have any meat back in Egypt. We want some meat. Moses intercedes and says, God, Numbers 11, what are you gonna do? These people want me. There's so many people here. We could have all the herds of Egypt and we wouldn't be able to feed all these people. And God says, and I love this, oh, Moshe, is my arm grown too small for you, little fella? 
Just wait and just watch. The next day the winds blow and millions and millions of quail are blown in so much that even I could shoot one with a shotgun. So much quail lands around the camp that it is stacked six feet deep. And God said, you will eat of that quail until it comes out your noses. Now that's a gross party, all right? While they are eating of the meat, the text says, while the meat was still in their teeth, God strikes them with a plague and 23,000 of them die. That's a bad congregational dinner. We never serve quail at our congregational dinners. It's just too risky. We're not gonna do it. In the same way, the people of Corinth, remember back in chapter eight, were demanding their right to eat meat because, hey, I'm a Christian. There's no big deal. I should be able to get meat. Paul says, watch it. Don't get all arrogant. Don't get all cocky and proud. This is written for us as a warning. Don't do it. Second massive failure, verse seven. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, Exodus 32, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Exodus 32 is that wonderful story where Moses is up on Mount Sinai with God and the people get restless and they say, hey, Aaron, we need something to do. There's no fidget spinners. What do we do? What do we do? And so Aaron says, give me all of your gold, all of your jewelry. They do. He throws it into the fire and out pops a golden calf. It just so happens. It's the craziest thing, Moses. You should have been here. I mean, like, no, really, Moses. You should have been here. And so the people, the text says in Hebrew, rose up. They ate and drank and rose up to play. They were not playing cornhole or ping pong. It's a Hebraic expression for a grand sexual orgy. Moses says, don't do that. With them, God was very, or Paul says, don't do that. God was pleased. Moses comes down, sees what's happening, breaks the 10 commandments, takes the golden calf, grinds it into powder, mixes it with water, makes them all eat it, and they died. That's what I'm talking about. That's church discipline right there, baby. We don't do that anymore, and for very good reason. But thousands of them died, and God was very displeased with them. Why? Because they were beginning to practice sexual immorality. And Paul says, how much more so? Church, you're beginning to dabble things. We talked about it in chapter 5 and in chapter 7. We won't talk about it anymore. You're beginning to dabble with that stuff as though it's not a big deal. It's a really big deal, and God takes it super seriously. Even though you're a Christian, you don't have those kinds of liberties. Well, the third massive failure, verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. That's a bad church business meeting. When 23,000 flop over dead, here's what's going on. Numbers 25. I think the apostle Paul really liked the book of Numbers. So far we looked at Numbers 11. Uh, We looked at Exodus 32. Now we're back in Numbers, Numbers 25. There's a Moabite king named Balak and Balak hates Israel. I mean, he hates Israel and he hires himself a prophet to curse Israel. Always a good idea. Balak says, Balaam, I want you to curse Israel. Here's some money. Get their God to curse them. Balaam says, I got this. I got this, bro. It goes up on a mountain and he says, okay, hear ye, hear ye, Israel. The Lord God, the Lord your God, bless you and love you for all salvation. Whoop, that didn't go well. Ah, sorry. And so he goes back and tells the king, look, man, it was the weirdest thing. I tried to curse him and I just ended up blessing him. Can I have some more money? And the king pays him. This happens two more times, three separate occurrences. He tries to curse him. All he can do is bless them. By now, the king of Moab, Balak, is very angry. Balaam says, don't worry about this. I got this. I got this. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have God judge and destroy Israel. 
Balak says, how are you going to do that? And Balaam says, I got Moabite women. And so Balaam sends in all of the Moabite women to go to the men of Israel. And they say, hey, why don't you come over to our uh, Moabite pagan lock-in where we have meat. You're sick of eating all that mananana bread and all that manicotti, right? We've got meat. Come on, come with us. We have meat. Oh, and by the way, did we mention, if you have the meat that's been sacrificed to Molech and Chemosh, you also get to rise up and play with our temple prostitutes. It's a great time. And the men of Israel all said, and I quote, oh. and they were in, and they went off, and they participated in Canaanite heathen pagan worship and sexual immorality, and God killed thousands of them. Too much was at stake to allow the covenant community, the messianic people to be defamed. Paul says, that's the example. Don't you know what we're about here? Morality matters. We must not do that. And the Corinthians were flirting with danger as they participated in sexual immorality. And they were going to the temples and they were eating and they were actually fellowshipping together as believers in the temples, which were nothing but nasty seediness. It would be like, forgive me, those who have uh, young ones here, I'll be delicate on this. It would be like, some of our men having a men's Bible study and insisting to continue to meet every Thursday afternoon in a strip club because the buffet's the best in town. That's what they were doing because that's the only place you could get meat was at the temple. And Paul says, get out of there. You cannot handle that. It's going to, dream, to drive you and the rest of the community down. You cannot handle it. Verse nine, we have another massive failure. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. <laughs> What's going on? Well, here again, Numbers 21. The people began to grumble saying, hey, God, you don't really know what you're doing. You don't know where we're going. You don't know what's best for us. We know what's best for us. And so God, well, he sent fiery serpents to bite them on the heels and on the legs. Now, he did provide a way of escape, interestingly. He had a bronze snake wrapped around a pole, and all they had to do was look at it, but he didn't take away the serpents. And Paul says, when you begin to start to think you know what's better for you and for the mission and the plan than God does, you are approaching and approximating consequence. How much more so from Israel might God do for his church? Well, the fifth final failure, we see this in verse 10 nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. <laughs> okay, Numbers 16. See, the Apostle Paul loved and knew the book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 16, this guy named Korah decided he didn't like Aaron being priest and Moses being the man. So he says, you know what? I got 250 fellow priests. We wanna take over. We wanna be in charge. Moses says, please do not do this thing. It will not go well for you. No, 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 we wanna take over. Moses says, fine. Tomorrow morning, gather up all your buddies and your families and get your censers, the little incense pots, put your fire in there and swing them. And God comes to Moses and says, Moses, you're gonna wanna step way to your left because I'm about to do something really powerful. And Moses tells those guys, hey, listen, if you all die tomorrow morning from natural causes, then God's clearly not with me. But if you die in some new, unique, totally awesome way, you'll know that God was with me. Incidentally, you're gonna die one way or the other, Okay. So sure enough, the next morning, they get up, they put fire in their pots, they start swinging them, and God says, I am incensed. The ground opens up, all those guys, and 14,700 of their family members and close community, the text says they go down into the shield, to the grave, alive, and the earth closes back over them. That's a tip-off that God's not with you. 
Paul says, how much more so you are flirting with questioning the apostolic truths. You're starting to think and feel and act like you know better than God, like morality doesn't matter. Morality matters. Let these things be a warning to you. Now, does God still take people out? He apparently was in the time of Corinth because in chapter 11, we'll read about some of these folks who did not survive communion. Now, that's a strange Sunday. So even with all these blessings, all these things, Paul does biblical theology, shows us the blessings, the nearness of God, the concern of God, and yet their pattern failure again and again and again. Well, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, let me keep reading now. We'll just walk through very briefly verses 11 to the end. Verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul says this is not the same age as Israel. Something has happened. Christ has come. Christ has lived. He's died. He's buried. He has been seen by hundreds. He has ascended. He has sent his spirit. It's a new age. This is the final age before the king returns. And so we have an ambassadorial, we have an emissarial role to play in heralding the kingdom that is come, that will come more fully. We are to resemble and to reflect righteousness in this realm. That's why this matters so massively. That's verse 11. Verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. When you begin to think, ah, I'm strong enough. That sin's never going to beset me. That sort of temptation's never going to get me. Surprise, you're going down. The world, your own flesh, the devil will pluck whatever string in your piano case until it resonates and you will be sought. Be careful when you think you're too strong to sin, when you think you're too strong to fall, the view from your nose in the ground is not so pleasant. That's what Paul says. And then, a famous, wonderful fighter verse. I hope you remember and rem will memorize 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's a fantastic verse. It gives us so much assurance. It tells us that every sort of temptation is an opportunity to overcome. That is precisely what God desires, so much so that he will always provide a way of escape. It tells us that God is active and immediately near to every single one of us, each as an individual, not just corporately as he was with Israel. God is so sovereign and so immediate with you that he will always provide a way of escape. Every temptation that we encounter has been experienced by someone else over the course of human history. We're not the only ones. All of us struggle. Sin, the book of Romans says, is anything that proceeds apart from faith. So God will never let us get into a situation in which our only alternative is to act apart from faith. I want you to hear that. God will never allow you and I to get into a situation in which our only alternative is to act apart from faith. We might have gotten ourselves in a situation or situations where our decisions are difficult or hard or even painful. But that's just how sovereign and good and loving is. God is always going to and willing and wanting to provide an escape for whatever it is we might be facing. We will never be in a situation where we only have the option to sin. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He's only used that expression one other time back in chapter six about sexual morality. It's the idea of Joseph fleeing from Mrs. Potiphar, leaving his clothes behind, have nothing to do with that. 
You've got wax wings, Icarus. Don't fly too close to the sun. You can't survive it. Get out of there. And Joseph fled. And Paul's telling the Corinthians, and therefore by extension us, to flee. Do not negotiate with that kind of terrorist, which is your own sin nature. I speak, verse 15, as sensible as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And then we're gonna get this wonderful connection to communion, to the Lord's Supper. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That word participation is the Greek word koinonia. It means fellowship. It's where we get our word for coinage. It's the currency. It's the thing that we have in common that binds us, unites us, and gives us a corporate identity. This one cup of Christ, this one bread of Christ, we the many, tending to fracture and to divide, to have disunity, are one in the finished work of what Christ has done. Because, verse 17, there is one bread, We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, back to them. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So those who ate the sacrifices from the altar, were they not a part of that? How much more so we are participants, have fellowship with Christ? Verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Oh, you were so smart, Corinthians. You said back in chapter eight that idols aren't really good. Idols, gods aren't really gods, and food offered to gods really aren't. They don't really mean anything. Nice try, you're close, but you're dead, dangerously, demonically wrong. Watch what he says. No, I imply, verse 20, what pagan sacrifice they offered to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. It's one of the most basic pastoral verses for a congregation right there. I just don't want y'all to be participant with demons. Can we just start there? That'd be nice. Could you just stop with all the demons? Okay, awesome. Moving on. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, or more appropriately, you must not drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Uh, No. All of these rhetorical questions are intended to get everyone to agree with one another, to say, we agree with you, Paul. Now let's all come back together. There were some who were saying morality doesn't matter, like the Greek Epicureans, it doesn't matter, I can go do whatever I want. Wrong, morality matters. You are representatives of the coming kingdom that has come already. So, strange little opening to 1 Corinthians 10. What do we take away from all this? Morality matters. Let me just give three very quick implications on this. Number one goes like this. God's blessings do not guarantee godly living. Have you noticed All that God has done, God cannot go beyond Calvary. All that God has done, and it does not guarantee our godly living. Listen, I figured just to make this more practical and personal, we're gonna have a time of testimony where we each get to share all of our temptations and struggles and our worst smoldering failures. So Mike Hall's gonna come up here and start us off, and then we'll just, we'll pray, and then we'll go home. No, I'm kidding. We're not gonna do that. Of course I'm kidding. But we can all relate to this. In fact, if we have the slightest shred of wisdom to know and understand that godly living is the life that we get to live, not that we have to live, then we must understand that we will be opposed and resisted by several forces in this world. God has done so much to bless us. That means that he has done the utmost by sending his holy and divine son. 
to enter into our context, understand our struggle, live through it in perfect holiness, and then die for the consequences of all the people who can't live in perfect holiness, then remove their sin and impute all of his righteousness to them, then send his Holy Spirit to indwell every believer and supply them with his inspired and inerrant and infallible written word and surround them with hundreds of other believers so that they can be a church. Wow. And yet, every believer faces a choice day by day, moment by moment, and this is where free will comes in. Just like in the Old Testament, God had given them the land. Would they just trust him enough to go in and take what he had given them? No, not so much. The land is yours. I've given it to you. Go get it. Nah, we're gonna just lazy out. In our context, will we choose to walk in wisdom by the Spirit or will we slip into the gravitational pull of our depravity, thinking that a little mess up every now and then isn't really that big of a deal? Paul's five examples of Israel show that the opposite is true. Every opposition we encounter is an opportunity to choose to live and think and feel and relate in view of what God has already done. The unbeliever has no alternative but to sin because sin is anything that proceeds apart from faith. When Christians sin, it's simply because they want to, because they choose to because they lay aside the crown that is being held over their head by their God and they choose to go the way of Israel in the wilderness. And so moment by moment, we take captive every thought. We, we shudder all of the foul that might come out in relational conversations. Morality matters as we are ambassadors and emissaries of the coming kingdom. Yes, God has not changed. He can still call a child of his home if and when there is a persistent and unrepentant wreckage happening in the life of the believer that so defames the covenant community. Certainly occurred in Israel. It was happening in Corinth. It's a big deal. Now, it's not something that's common in our day and age, I think, and for that, I'm grateful. And so we also have to be super careful that we don't attribute that anytime somebody doesn't live to be a ripe old age, we just assume, mm, God took them out, God took them home. Not necessarily, but the warnings remain and they persist. The point is that God is sovereign and he is holy and he has blessed us with victory to take it, to live the life that he has created us to enjoy. Second point goes like this. You can't handle it. You can't handle it. You're not really supposed to even try. No one's ever gotten out of this life sinlessly. As Rich Mullins again saying, we are not as strong as we think we are. I have a close uh, relative, I'll put it at that, who regularly and frequently watches uh, very graphic stand-up comedy that is vulgar, profane, angry, violent, and candidly, I think it's evil. And I've asked him, because he claims to be a believer, dude, how do you pump that stuff into your being? He said, it's no big deal, I can handle it. It's no big deal, I can handle it. This has been going on for years. I said, dude, you can't have that sort of stuff going into your soul. It's no big deal, I can handle it. Right up into the point where he gets stressed, or fatigued, and I hear it bubble right back out of him. Or he gets mad at his kids, or he gets mad at his wife, and it bubbles right back out of him. Or he gets mad in traffic, or if he's just having a bad day, or if there's one less tater tot from Sonic than there should have been. No, you and I can't handle it. At any given moment, we are always under attack from the world system and the flow of our culture, the enemy of our souls, the devil, and our own sin nature that constantly wants to glorify the self and take shortcuts to that glory. We are either always experiencing temptation 
or accusation. And if you don't know this about yourself, then learn this about yourself. We're always experiencing either temptation or accusation. Your enemy loves to tempt you by giving you a view of yourself that is too high. He's trying to convince you that you deserve better than what you have and that God is holding out on you, and so you justify it. He hides God's holiness from you and how much God hates sin. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Don't think about that. He hides God's holiness and how much God hates sin. Or if that doesn't work, your enemy loves to accuse you of your sin and give you a view of yourself that's way, way too low. He hides the love of God from you and reminds you of God's wrath. He causes you to focus more on your sin than on your Savior. The inner monologue of your heart and your mind shifts from I, I to you, you. It's a surefire way to know that you're under accusation. And we run to some sort of less than noble escape that just like with temptation, we attempt to justify whatever sin that seizes us. All the many blessings that God gives do not give us license to live however we feel. That's what was happening in Corinth. And it's the same stuff, second verse in our day and age today. Third point goes like this. Righteousness, not rights. That's to be our badge. Maybe to say it another way, I would say, work your witness, not your entitlement. Our freedom is so that we can pursue the righteousness that has already been given to us and use it to encourage one another and evangelize, give the gospel with our whole lives. In the book of Titus, Paul calls us a particularly peculiar priestly people. We are here for a mission and a purpose to call and beckon and summons citizens into their future citizenship of the kingdom that has come and is coming again. We saw you a lot around here, and I'll say it again. Most people trust a Christian before they trust Christ. So it matters that we are operating and thinking and feeling and relating to one another according to righteousness, the currency and the ethic and the aesthetic of the kingdom we represent, instead of trying to figure out how to put sequins and stickers on our uniforms. That's an adventure in missing the point, just because we have the right to do so. Remember whose you are and who you are and why you are and what your purpose is, to be the walking around righteousness of God in the world. That's you and you and us no matter what little pocket of the world you occupy. We've said it already in this section of Corinthians in verse, chapters eight through nine. The idea is we, not me. We said this way back before Thanksgiving when we were still starting off this lengthy section and it bears repeating. Choose love over liberty. If the Christians who call themselves such in the church would simply choose love over liberty and when in doubt, do the most loving thing, our community would flourish. See, morality matters. I point you to Jesus. His gospel is great good news. We're not merely trying to be moral people. No, we are living morally because of what Christ has done in each of us who believe. Morality matters. A life of morality is a manifestation and a projection and a demonstration of the character of God and his heaven. And it is by no means boring or dull. Again, it is the serious business of Christian fun. I've said this before and I'll say it again. It's a quote from one of my favorite uh, heroes of the faith, Dallas Willard. He says, the virtuous life is the only life that really works. Another guy, Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade, said at the end of his life, this is what he discovered. Ready for this? And some of you are gonna hear this. You're gonna wanna pin your ears back and disagree. Good luck. This is what he said. At the end of my life, here's what I have discovered. There are no happy, sinful people. There are no unhappy, righteous people. What a way to live. 
This is really and truly and literally possible in our lives because of the gospel. The gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. See, the gospel wrecks temptation. It comes along and says that I need a substitute. I am way worse than I think I am. And I'm certainly not as strong as I think I am, or I'd like to think that I am. I cannot justify anything on my own. But the gospel says that sin really is a big deal. And even my most righteous deeds are as filthy rags and rubbish before God. And Jesus had to die for my sake if I was to have any chance at redemption. The gospel reminds me that the holiness of God demands judgment for my sin and that his own son paid the price. The gospel reminds me that I have in Christ is more than enough. The gospel also wrecks accusation. The gospel comes along and says that I am way more loved than I can ever imagine, so much so that God sent his only son. The gospel comes along and says that while my sin is severe, it is no match for God's grace. I am as loved in this exact instant and moment as I will be in 100 million years. For some of you, that's all you need to hear for the whole morning. You are as loved in this nanosecond as you will be in 250 million years. He could not possibly love you more. He cannot love you less. That's the gospel. The gospel reminds me that I am accepted right now by God completely. And so praise God for what he's done in Christ. And may we learn from Israel. May we learn from Corinth and also provide positive examples for our incoming generations of younger believers and pre Christians. Morality matters. We get to be moral. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for the morning and thanks for your word. I pray that all those gathered will have heard a better sermon than the one that was preached and that you will continue to connect, communicate, and convey your truth to us, that we would be changed ever increasingly to the likeness of your son, Jesus. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, that is simply trying to figure out how to erase some red X's with gold stars, would you reveal to them the folly of that approach and show them Jesus, even in this text, that they would step out of darkness into light, out of death into life, and they would begin a life walking with you in the nearness of you. For the rest of us, Father, would you remind us that our lives and our conduct in this world, this community, this church, and our families and our homes matters We are expressing righteousness and its rich reward. May the gospel continue to sound forth from this place. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.